Welcome to The Real Photo Show. My guest today is Karen Marshall. Karen is a documentary photographer and chair of the Documentary Practice and Visual Journalism Program at ICP. And we are going to talk about her recent book, Between Girls, published by Kara Verlag. But before we get to that, The Real Photo Show is sponsored by the Charcoal Book Club, a monthly subscription service and a wonderful way to fill your bookshelves. Also, the Charcoal Book Club's Chico Hot Springs Portfolio Review deadline is coming up. The Chico Review takes place over six nights at Chico Hot Springs Resort near Livingston, Montana. 64 applicants will be selected by jury and invited to spend the week with 20 of the most influential and creative photographers, bookmakers, gallerists, museum curators, and photo book publishers in the industry. One full scholarship and five partial scholarships will be awarded. Student discounts and need-based scholarships will be available to those selected who qualify. And the application deadline is December 27th, so you should visit ChicoReview.com to uh, apply for that program. All right, so again, my guest is Karen Marshall, and Karen began photographing a group of teenagers in 1985 in New York City. And her intent was to look at the emotional bonding that happens between girls at age 16 and to document the relationships that happen over time. But 10 months into the project, Molly Brover, who was Karen's first and closest connection at this time in the work, was killed while on vacation. And the project became more than its original idea. Uh, Between Girls is a 30-year-long visual story of the lives of the core group of friends that all started with Molly. Uh, And we're going to talk about this book and how you really handle 30 years worth of work and other materials which are linked in the book. It's actually a really interesting and wonderful layout. And talk about, you know, what's the best form? What's the best way to share this kind of story? Uh, We'll also talk about how Karen got started in photography. And I asked Karen some questions about some of the ways that Karen teaches documentary practice and the different forms that documentary work can take. All right, everyone, thank you for listening. Enjoy the show, and we will talk soon. Well, welcome, Karen. Thank you for joining me. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, So you have a book which came out last October, Between Girls, and it is the culmination of 30 years of work. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) You know, I always try not to ask yes or no questions, but (laughs) eventually I end up doing it. (laughs) Yeah, 30 years of work. And I got a a chance to to look through it, and it's it's such a, a lovely document um, and the the layout and the way you put it together uh, is just so very interesting, including, you know, links to audio and video files. And uh, it's just a um, sort of beautiful journey uh, of documenting these girls, now women, uh, in this in this book. Um, how did that all start? So back in 1985, um, I was in my 20s and I had spent the first portion of being a serious photographer, mainly out on the street, uh, doing environmental street photography with a 1950s Roloflex. Hmm. It's really kind of looking at America and the people out there and questioning what that was. Um, But in 1985, 
I, I don't know, things shifted for me and I had this really incredible desire to move inside. And I, I mean that in two different ways. One way was that literally I didn't want to be on the street anymore, but I also, I wanted to do some sort of long-term inquiry uh, that was more about sort of the psychological ideas of who we are as human beings. And I also really wanted to address this notion of how do we get along? That was part of it. Opposed to like, I think documentary photography, often people tend to think of it as being all about conflict and especially back then. Mm. And I was like, well, even if we get to war and not getting along, there is that place where we do all get along Hmm. and we have a universality of that. And that was part of my motivation. And the other part of my motivation was that I had grown up, I came of age in the 1970s when the women's consciousness raising movement was sort of the main taste of the day, so to speak. And every woman around me, from my mother to my teachers to myself, was questioning not just women's empowerment, but who we were, what made us particularly special in the human race or however you want to put it. So by the mid-1980s, I was really thinking about like no one was talking about this anymore. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And I also sort of felt I started looking around. I was like, there's nothing on women. There's hardly any material on women coming of age. And that was also something that was like, wait a minute, let's do something. So yeah, in the the 80s, I don't. Yeah, I don't remember. Like, I I remember the idea of the feminist movement already being a kind of historical idea uh, with the the sexual revolution and and right. It wasn't as much a presence as much a conversation as you know it was growing up. I remember in the seventy in the seventies because I think um, so. I I was born in in the late six in sixty seven. Uh, so I'm actually about the age of the people you were photographing. <laughs> Very much so. You were only two years younger than them. I mean, two years old. Two, two years, years older. older two years older. Right. <laughs> right. The New York City you show in the book is the New York City I very much remember when I was going to school at the School of Visual Arts, and you know, so it was it was really interesting for me to to look through this book and you know see that kind of life on the street that I I do so remember, but also looking through the book. Like I was saying before, it's this beautiful journey that you document. It's it's quite moving and emotional and heartbreaking. And I imagine having to put together something like this over a course of 30 years and then trying to figure out how to put it together in, in a way that makes sense, in a way that flows as a story, in a way that f- flows as a... Um, a visual journal as well. Um, there's so many moving parts, there's so many pieces, and I wonder how. I don't wonder how that all you know came together for you. How do you look back at work, not just work you made, but the work you were still making, and and decide how to put it all together? So you know, it this whole this was a very long journey, obviously, and it had many different turns and twists, and so. A lot of it relied also on this kind of what I like to call the documentary urge. I kept having Mm. these different paths I would go down. And so in 1990, I made a 12 minute audio piece. And the reason why that came to be was that I had created a book dummy uh, in the late 1980s and had a lot of conversations with book editors about, well, what would the text be? And One thing that kept coming up for me was that the women I photographed were really articulate. And I really felt that 
they set it for themselves. And I had mentioned this to a friend of mine who at the time was a sound engineer in a radio station. And she said, you know, Karen, why don't you just come in after hours and, you know, we'll grab whoever we can and start playing with audio. And Mm. so when the women were 20 and sort of during, you know, college holidays or whatever, when they were back in town, I brought some of them into the studio, not all of them. They weren't all available. And I ended up making this 12 minute tape. And then I had a tape and I had black and white images that I had like photographed on a copy stand as slides. So hmm. it was sort of like a dog and pony show. Yeah. <laughs> um, and a real then I was audio like, visual uh, tech technical uh, feat there. (laughs) You know, and that wasn't bad, but it wasn't what I wanted. And I kept trying to figure it out. And so I just kept going, you know, technology is changing. Let me see. And I actually had gotten even a a friend of mine who was a video editor gave me a estimate for to to make it in make a video of the slide tape show. And it was way expensive. And I was like, forget about that. So then as things kept evolving, I started shooting video. Uh, the original video is in high eight and then where I brought them together. So then my method started changing because I started inviting them to come and be in dialogue with me. And then I also got like a, a Sony Walkman Pro. Oh, I, ha- I still like, have one. <laughs> <laughs> actually, now that you remind me, I actually think I have a microphone somewhere that oh. goes with that. I could have used. Um, but anyhow. Because I kept doing these different things, I started compiling all this different material. So that both was exciting and it also totally confused me. Mm. And it sort of stalled the resolve. But then I decided the resolve wasn't meant to be yet. Oh, okay. So it's about being patient. Mm-hmm. You know, it's funny. People will ask me things about the book and they'll say like, so what's next? And I said, don't you understand? I worked on this for 30 years. You think I wasn't photographing other things and doing right, other things? Right. So, you know, over time, some some years I didn't do much, but maybe write on it. There were a lot of different book dummies. At one point, I thought I was making a film. I made a five minute edit, like a trailer, and I actually really hated it. Mm. And that was a, an amazing gift. Because I went, no, I'm not a photographer making a film about a photography project. And so there were a number of those kinds of things that happened. But somewhere around 2006 or seven, I really saw this as a gallery installation piece. And I started designing that. And that really worked because I had different iterations that I did that started creating an organizational flow for me Mm -hmm. of the different things because I had project ephemera. I had the history of technology because of all the different things I had documented with. I had the silver gelatin images that were from the original group of pictures. And I kind of came up with a strategy that I employed and I spent probably a good portion of a decade working on that. Mm. And in 2015, when it was exactly 30 years, I went and documented all of them um, over a 10-day time period. And I was having a gallery installation at that point. And I realized that I was finished. So after I did that very large gallery installation piece, 
I decided I really needed to finally resolve for the last time the book, because that's what this really was supposed to be. So that's how I got there. So in a very long roundabout way, <laughs> what I'm saying to you is that all that that the installation was my research for understanding what I wanted and what I didn't want in the book. And after the installation and after you decided, well, this is it, now it's time for the book, were there photos you went and made uh, as you were laying it out? Were, were there things where you're thinking, well, I can make this photo now? Or did you have to sort of make that conscious effort? I need to stop photographing because th- now it's time for the book. Yeah. I, in the book, you will find one photograph that I made recently, and you will find some images that were lifted from the women's social media, Mm -hmm. but the last really official pictures of any of the women was in 20, in August of 2015. Okay. And and yes, the, the way the book is laid out, um, there are, there are layouts of, of grid color photos. And like you said, there are some things that, that look like they were made by the women themselves or their families now, or, you know, there's, they're, they're much more kind of snapshot looking uh, photos and there's other ephemera in, in there as well. But the, the thing that you made me think of while you were talking about technology changing and, and the original gelatin prints is that's you in the book. I feel like there's a, a presence of, of you in the book through, through the technology that was changing the, including photos of the the tapes and the devices and and also seeing how the the images change over time the prints change over time the quality the film everything you know changes over time and i feel like that's that's sort of your presence in the book because you know we actually haven't <laughs> we actually haven't said really the kind of what the book is really about yet and i'd like to get to that right now and you know it documentary isn't the same as photojournalism, right? Documentary uh, work tends to have a, a point of view at times. Also, uh, I think because the work is done over longer periods of time, typically there's a connection that's made that isn't made typically in, in sort of journalism necessarily. Uh, and so I think that presence of you does come through the book. And, and it does start with your relationship with Molly, this, this whole project. And uh, I think Molly was a junior in high school when you started this. She was a babysitter for friends of yours and and you got in touch with her. And that's how this all. And, you know, you said earlier you wanted to you wanted to explore the relationship of women. You wanted to explore the relationship of bonding uh, because of, of, you know, how you grew up and, and how you didn't see this conversation happening anymore. And so Molly was the first person in this story. Right. So. Yes, I was looking to photograph a group of girls that could really talk about sort of the universality of what girls share with each other. Mm. And on purpose, I was looking for women who were neither uber rich or below the poverty line because I really didn't want to talk about class structure. I also wanted to talk about something that often wasn't looked at, which was kind of middle-class people who were not, especially in those days in New York City, there were plenty of of middle-class people who could afford to be in the city. <laughs> that isn't necessarily the case anymore. That's right. That's right. Um, who kind of saw 
intellect and culture and uh, ideas, politics as a lot more about wealth than than material things. So anyhow, I mean, that was kind of some of what I was looking for. And I was lucky. I actually photographed a few different girls before I met Molly. Mm. They just weren't really there wasn't enough of a connection there for what I was looking for. They weren't social enough. Like I really needed, well, what I wanted to do was look at friendships. So obviously I needed to find girls that were social. And when my friends sort of directed me to Molly, they did so with a big hearty laugh, like, (laughs) Oh yes, Molly. And from my very first phone call with her, I knew that this was going to be, very interesting. And so she understood what I was looking for right away. So the first day I met her, she had invited her friend Jen over. And there were two reasons. One, she and Jen had known each other since kindergarten. They lived in the same neighborhood on the Upper West Side. But secondly, Jen went to a different large high school. So Molly already had thought ahead. Here, here are two different. You, I have lots of people in my high school, and Jen will have a whole lot of others. Mm. So that way, Karen will have uh, a big social expanse. <laughs> so she had already. She was kind of my fixer at the same time as my. <laughs> my I didn't ask her to be my fixer. That's what happened. Yeah. Um, so yes, she was the central person um, that everything else uh, stretched out from. Right. It was, uh, was that Gen P or Gen G? <laughs> Gen G. Okay. <laughs> There's Blake, Leslie, Gen P, Gen G, Zoe, uh, Molly. Uh, and, and so you photographed Molly for about 10 months. Yeah. I, I photographed Molly and, Mo- and, and her friends, her friends right. and her friends' friends uh, for 10 months. It was summer came. I had no, I had great images, but I had no idea what I was really going to do with it. I realized that senior year was going to be upon them and maybe it would be different. And uh, in July, um, you know, everybody went on their different vacations or camps or whatever they would work, whatever they were doing. And Molly went for a brief holiday to visit some family friends on Cape Cod. And she ended up tragically getting hit by a car and killed. And that was very shocking for everybody. And I was, you know, I was just completely floored seeing that I had documented her life so closely for those 10 months Mm -hmm. beforehand. But what it made me realize, made me realize a lot of things, but about the fragility of adolescence and the vulnerability of adolescence and and also that Molly would remain 17 and the rest of them would become women. So I didn't feel like I could just stop the project there. And I also felt like in some ways Molly had been my collaborator and I didn't want to let her down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, you write at the end of the book that you believe Molly would have been happy with the way it all turned out. Very much so. And uh, even... Uh, at the time, that, that 10 months, you know, that you had with her, you did uh, become close and you spoke at her memorial. Yeah. I mean, I was kind of like a big sister camp counselor to all of them. Mm. Um, I was a little bit too old to be their sister and I was certainly too young to be their mother. Hmm. So, you know, I was this kind of sounding board of sorts. And um, 
they let me hang out with them. You know, I mean, sometimes I was a total fly on the wall, but Mm -hmm. other times we had lots of different conversations. And then this becomes, this shapes the storyline. This Molly's death shapes where this project goes uh, because the, the, the group, Molly's friends, have their, their own way of dealing with Molly's death, right? And there are relationships that change because of Molly's death. There's a, the inability sometimes to communicate with each other or to, to be close. You know, they, they, some of them separate a little bit over time because it's painful to be together. There's a lot. And, you know, I'm, it's, it's a big book. I'm not going to summarize it all together. It's a big, beautiful story. But that's where you have to let go and say, I'm going to follow this now where it takes me, right? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting that you made the remark earlier that I'm, I'm in the book and in the photographs because a lot of ways I feel like where I really get into the book is when after Molly dies and then I'm bringing them together. Mm-hmm. So instead of me finding times to hang out with them while their life is in real life, I'm asking them to pull themselves out of life and talk about things. Mm. And a lot of the questions I ask them, I ask them over and over again in different ways. So it's really indeed a meditation of sorts. It's a reckoning. Mm-hmm. It's a, and it, not all of it is about Molly. Some of it is about just relationships you have at that time in your life. So that's really where I started weaving things. Also, You'll note in the book that a lot of the text is actually Molly's diaries or Molly's stories. There's also a story by one of the other women Mm -hmm. actually about a weekend with Molly. And I always felt that this was also a way of them telling their own story along with all the interviews and things like that. So it's not about my voice. Mm -hmm. It's about their voice. Yeah. No, that absolutely comes through the... Just a, a note about the diary. The in terms of putting the, making the book, there's a this beautiful way that you turn the page over and we see the text sort of coming through the page, uh, which also alludes to that sort of loss in memory, right? That come that you know coming from reading a diary of somebody who's passed. Uh, I thought that was beautifully done. Well, I had the great pleasure of working with a really talented designer and. There's a lot of, we use four different papers. And in the beginning of the book, the paper for the photographs from 1985-86 are on a stock that's a little warmer than the back of the book. It's Mm. the same stock of paper, but that's also to signify in the very beginning, this is from a photo geeky viewpoint Mm. that I had been printing on something that was called Agfa Batriga Rapid, sure. which was a very warm tone, beautiful, beautiful warm tone paper that had kind of, even the white had kind of a green mm-hmm. cream in it. And then they stopped making it. And then there were still warm tone papers, which kind of the back of the book has, but it was colder. So that's actually a, a, oh, a side thing. Yeah. And then the, then there's the see-through paper, which really helps with sort of this idea of the translucent ideas of memory and, and, and the diary. And what I also love about Molly's diary entries and even what we use in the very beginning of the book, a story of hers, is that it's unique to her, but also I know I could look at my own diary entries from the age of 16 or 17. And a lot of other readers have told me the same thing. And it's like, <laughs> it's going to be similar. Mm-hmm. Yes. 
So that was also part of my intent. Right. In the, uh, the closing um, part of the book at the, at, at the end is, you know, you, you have um, a lot of uh, kind of acknowledgments, of course, and thank yous and all those things. And, uh, but, um, you know, there's a, um, a kind of summary of, of things, very, a very short summary towards the end. And it talks about the idea of when we see this work, we're seeing it, you know, at 250th of a second, uh, you mentioned, you know, the idea of the, the photograph being, you know, alluding to the idea that the photograph is something different, right? It's, you put this together and we get to see it in this way and we get to see it in, in this book. And I, and I don't know if you, if you mean it to be this way, but of course it's impossible to really sum up people's lives in, in something like this, right? And so, you know, as you are the, the chairperson of, of the documentary program at ICP, when you talk about making documentary work, um, you know, what kind of discussion is that it's in terms of saying, you know, you're not, you can't tell someone's whole life in this format, right? Um, how do you decide the, the purpose, the focus, the intent of a story and decide, you know, what's, what's, what, what can you leave out? What can you include? I know that's a big question <laughs> and I'm not it's, asking it's you for a free really, course. <laughs> it's a really enormous question, but, yeah. but I will say a number of things. First of all, I'm very interested in what a visual story is. I'm also very open to what a visual story is because it can be very linear or it can be very metaphoric. It can be conceptual. I mean, you know, it's interesting because I tend to really like to read a lot of fiction as mm. an example. And I, because I learn a lot from that kind of storytelling, I, I read a lot of nonfiction too, but I'm just <laughs> saying that, if you think about a lot of fiction narratives or fiction writers that sometimes they're so descriptive, they tell you exactly what a room looks like and they tell you exactly what the person is wearing or that kind of thing. And it's amazing. And then other times you realize that they never tell you any of those things, but you know it anyhow. Mm. And I've noticed sometimes, and I, I can't give you an example here today because I'm not top of mind on it, but yeah. <laughs> there have been times where I've, let's say, a film, a feature film has been made on a piece of fiction that might have been written in a way that wasn't descriptive, except that somehow even the filmmaker is seeing it in the same way I thought I saw it in mm. my mind's eye. And so I'm just saying that the reason why I bring that up is that with a visual story, there are many things that there's there's a lot of space between images and ideas that allow the reader to expand mm -hmm. for themselves. And so those are things I'm really interested in, not just in my own work, but in the work of others. And I think that even if we look at my Between Girls book, that I have been the thing I love most is also to mentor others in their visual stories and to have these kinds of discussions as to, is this linear and descriptive or is this, you know, what's the space in between images? What do we allow? Uh, how do we allow the images themselves to let the reader uh, go on a journey opposed to trying to 
sketch every little thing out for them. And so I think all the years in the classroom with helping others is certainly part of the muscle I grew for how I even deal with my own work. And one of the things about the program that I run is that we don't teach by formula. We we sort of allow people to figure out their own journey as to how they want to build a narrative and weave it together. So, yeah. And I also, one thing I really believe is that, you know, you start working on a project, it's very important that you have a very specific intention in mind, but then you have to stay completely open Mm -hmm. to allow that the images themselves are now telling you we're going in a slightly different journey than we originally thought. And that you sort of have this delicate balance between what you want something to be, but what it is and what it is, is what your images, the the best images that float to the top are the ones that guide you. Yeah. Those, those images um, will reveal to you what you're actually interested in. Right. Absolutely. Yes. And, and something you've experienced firsthand with this book, uh, being open to the changes that can happen beginning with your intent and then where this goes. Um, And that is how I actually um, getting back to what you said about space. It's the space in this book. It's the, it's the time between in this book where I start thinking about my own life while I'm looking at the book. It's where I'm thinking about my own experiences and how I relate to the experiences that I'm looking at in this book. And that, that's the, yeah, that's the beautiful thing about leaving that space. Yeah. Thank you. No, I mean, that is actually part of my intention because if you're, if you're going to address something that has to do with universality, you want everybody to relate to it. And one of the things that uh, I found out over the years is that, you know, there are especially young girls who have reached out to me on the internet. This is before the book, but they had seen some of the images and they went, well, you know, my girlfriends might look different than these 1980s girls in New York, but it feels like the same thing. Mm-hmm. And they feel good about that. And that's kind of part of what I was after. Yeah. Let's let's go back in time a little bit. How do you get started in photography? So I know you had I the Rolly grew- Flex. You mentioned that. Yes. Yep. <laughs> well, before that, I, before that, actually, I had two other cameras prior to that. <laughs> so I could revert back that way. But um, so I grew up in a pretty artistically oriented family. My mother had been in the theater. She taught theater. She was very involved in a community theater. And so the idea of the character and the stage and the narrative was like just part of my life from ever I can remember. And I also did a lot of modern dance. So I was very, very involved in my creative self right from the very beginning. But when I was 13, I was in a summer camp, summer arts camp, and there were these kids who were doing photography and they had like some show of some prints they had made in the darkroom. And I don't know what came over me. I really have no recollection of the pictures. They maybe weren't even good photographs. Um, But I saw the images and I was like, I went, wait a minute. This is what I need to do. This is this is where I need to go. And I have no idea why. But I just sort of followed that path and I kind of had to make a decision. It sounds so silly looking back as an adult now, but it made sense then because if you're going to be a dancer, it's a very early career. Mm -hmm. And I had to make a decision that I wasn't going to take as many dance classes um, and I was going to learn photography. So Mm. in high school, 
I started photographing and, you know, certainly I explored a lot of different things, but I was very interested in like photographing real life and things as they unfolded and people were really important to me. And, um, and then when it was time to go to college, there were very few, this is really the olden days. There were very few liberal arts schools that had photography programs. And I knew that I did not want to get a BFA. I didn't Mm. just want to go to art school. I wanted to think about anthropology and psychology. I wanted to know writing. I just felt like I needed to be a well-rounded thinker. So I ended up at Hampshire College, which was a fairly new school at the time. They were one of the only schools that had a strong photography department. Hmm. It was also a combined photo film department. And I didn't even understand terms back then, but it was also (laughs) very documentary oriented. So that's where (laughs) I found myself. Um, So the reason why I bring that up, though, is because I was in seminars with the filmmakers as well. So even though I wasn't a filmmaker, I had to critique people's films, which were narratives. So I learned a lot there, Mm -hmm. though I was never interested in being a filmmaker. And that's when I started using the Rolleiflex. So before that, I actually, my first 35 millimeter camera was some weird thing my father got me that was (laughs) an exact VX 500. Very Uh strange. (laughs) Some sort of, I don't know what that was. Was that an Eastern European camera? Yes, exactly. Some weird thing. And then I had a Nikon, a Nicker mount. I had a Nicker mount. Mm -hmm. But when I found the Rolleiflex, that really changed things for me. And I stayed with the Rolleiflex until... When I started the Between Girls project, I knew that I wanted a 35 millimeter camera, that I wanted a 35 millimeter lens. I even changed how I developed film. I like did there were, it was very intentional my tools. So I still shoot with medium format, lots mm. and lots these days. So I didn't abandon it, but just to say about tool choices that the tools I used for this project were. From from the film to the paper to the flash were all very specific and well intended. Oh, so after after you went to Hampshire, did you do graduate school? Is is that when you start going to ICP? Uh, was there? Time yeah, between? I mean, I came to New York. I eventually, I, w- I was in Western Massachusetts, and then I eventually came to New York, and I had a number of jobs and in the photo industry, and it was kind of I don't know, not not really stimulating me Mm -hmm. much. And I also felt that I needed more work for myself on thinking about the visual narrative. And I also didn't know very much like, well, I knew I had studied journalism in in undergrad, but I hadn't really thought about that as far as photographing. I needed practical skills for editorial (laughs) work. So I decided to go to ICP because I knew that I could sort of think about how do I broaden the idea, not just of the documentary inquiry, but also what, how did I fit into photojournalism or did I fit into photojournalism? So that's how I ended up there. And after my time at ICP, et cetera, I mean, I did do, you know, a bunch of editorial work. Mm. Things were very different then. There were magazines. (laughs) Yeah, something called magazines, and there was something <laughs> called selling stock oh, yes. on high end before Getty and everybody else. So there were a lot of different things I did mm-hmm. um, as far as that goes. You know, I did a lot of work for other foundations. I did a lot of different mm-hmm. 
things to make a living yes, uh, and eventually yeah. found teaching, which was something I hadn't necessarily originally thought I would ever do, but it was came that, naturally to was me. Was that at ICP? Was that where you started teaching? I taught, let me think. I mean, I think I taught at the, the 92nd Street Y mm. used to have a photo department hmm. and dark rooms and wow. all these things. That's a really <laughs> long time ago. So I think I might've started there and then I started teaching at ICP. And then expanded out to some other places as well. But right, uh, you're at NYU now, I think, too. Well, yeah, I at some point or another, somebody hunted me down, and I started teaching a class at NYU that is for non-visual arts majors. I still actually teach it just because I think it keeps me on my toes mm-hmm. of thinking about other things. Uh, and I teach up at the main media workshops oh, right, and right. Um, advise them, their graduate students, on occasion and that kind of thing as well. But I've been at ICP for over two decades, and about five years ago, I started running the department I used, to, you know, that I teach in uh, the documentary practice and visual journalism program. Right. So, so you were you've been there through two moves, right? <laughs> I was there from the mansion. Yep. <laughs> so, I remember yes, the mansion. I've been around. So yes, and now yes. we're on on Essex Street. Yes, mansion to Midtown to Essex. The Essex Street space is incredible. So incredible. Yeah. I actually love the the museum space uh, on Essex. I think it's so just so smartly laid out in the way it, it flows, the way you can have separate shows and one big show. And uh, it's just so good. It's very exciting. We moved in there and then five and a half weeks later, we yes. closed down for COVID. <laughs> yes. So being back in the classroom there is it's like we just are finally moving in now. Mm-hmm. And it's it's amazing to be in a neighborhood, and that's really what Midtown lacked. Mm-hmm. Um, so I feel like we really it's just great to be in New York City. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. So um, you know, who do you consider to be your your mentors? At, at you know, you were at Hampshire, you were at ICP. I think my main mentors are my undergraduate mentors, mm-hmm. Jerome Liebling, Elaine Mays, just because that's where I gained my roots. But at ICP, uh, Fred Richin founded the program Mm. and was running it. And he really taught me a lot about photo editing, which I always had had kind of an intuitive relationship with. But he really upped that for me. And also, I figured out a lot through him and some other people I work with there just to understand how I define the difference between photojournalism and documentary. And then Abigail or Abby Heyman, um, (laughs) it was a class that she was in where I first really developed the idea of between girls. And in some ways I considered her, you know, a friend, but she was certainly a mid help midwife this Mm. project with me. And I think that, you know, when I look back her book, she had a seminal book that came out in the 1970s called Growing Up Female. It was amazing. Most women my age who became photographers, that was a really important book for them just because it, through photographs, it asked these questions about women's identity. So it was such a pleasure to be in the classroom with her. And I think she asked me a lot of really, really good questions that really helped instigate this. And it's just, she passed away a few years ago. So I just feel Mm. very sad that she didn't finally see the final iteration of this because she was around in the beginning. Right. 
And so I know, um, obviously, in 30 years, like you said, uh, you didn't stop working on other things and you have other projects. Is there something um, coming up? Is there something that also is coming to a close that you've been thinking about? There's a lot of things that, <laughs> that I could mention. But what's interesting is that while I was designing the book and working on that, um, and when Donald Trump became the president, I kind of kept asking myself this question of like, what is America? And I realized that I had asked that question with my role of flex when mm -hmm. I was a student at Hampshire College. And then after that, out on the streets. So I started going back and looking at, because I was at all my negatives from there and I started scanning them. So I actually have an incredible amount of archive that I now really want to get to that talk about an America that doesn't exist anymore and is the one that I pondered back then. And one of the things I learned from that work is that it really it's kind of like good wine. It actually is much more powerful now than it was when I took those images. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of, I've already been kind of moving that work around and have plans of doing large prints because it's all scans. Mm -hmm. Originally, when I had first printed it, they were 16 by 20 silver gelatin, but I big, see it that really was big differently. back then. I mean, 16, 20 silver gelatin. That was, <laughs> that was a feat. <laughs> but the images that I've discovered more recently are actually, most of them are much more interesting than the ones I printed when I was younger. So I'm going through a similar thing myself with my, almost the same time span, 30 years of photography. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and that, that is actually a, a big part of the process, right? That reflection, being able to, I mean, this, this is somewhat unique in that it was, is 30 years long, but, you know, again, talking about teaching and, and students and all, it's, it's, it, it's a, a more difficult concept to sort of talk about the value of, of a time span with students who are, you know, making work with deadlines in the moment, right? Yeah. I mean, I think the thing is, is that there, sometimes there's work that is, about, well, it's like, you know, I'm going to use the, the wine analogy again. <laughs> sometimes it's about consuming it right away. And sometimes it's about the long game. And one of the things I've learned about myself is that I think I'm really interested in the photograph as how it suspends over time. And so, and I've always been interested in that. Sometimes I want to document something because I realize that later it won't be here anymore and or that something really important is happening and we're going to forget it. So I better look at it. So I think that's just who I am. And it doesn't mean that I also don't have that. I'm not photographing mm -hmm. totally different stuff. Yes. Um, yeah. Right now, I've been actually looking at infrastructure for the last few years. That's all I'm going to say about mm -hmm. it. It rarely has any human beings in it, but it's all about people. Mm -hmm. So in a sense, it's all cohesive. But in that work, it's like I don't necessarily have a desire to be sharing that right away. So what I've learned for myself is that this reflection back is, is something I enjoy doing and makes sense with the work I make. And now I have a lot of responsibility to get a lot of other pieces yeah. out. And it feels really good to have the Between Girls 
project out in the world and it's something people can hold in their hand and experience. Mm -hmm. And so now it obviously will give me a lot more space to (laughs) get other things out in the world. Right. So um, it's published by, is it uh, Kara Heidelberg or or Kara Verlang, which is in Heidelberg. Yeah. Oh, that's it. Right. Right. And uh, how should, uh, how should people purchase this book? So it was available all over the U.S. for a while, but mm-hmm. they they've ran out of copies well, here, and there's more copies on the way. So oh, okay. it is around. Uh-huh. First of all, you can go to the Care website and order it there. Mm-hmm. If you go to like Barnes and Noble or some of the sort of normal online places, uh, it might say that it's um, not available right now or on back order. Back or- yeah. But it. it uh, Fedoi, if you go to them, mm-hmm. they'll they'll do pre-orders. I believe that the Rizzoli website and the ICP web bookstore website still have them available. Oh, great! And uh, the books that are are coming to fill the orders are, is that a second printing or is that still the original printing? It's still the original printing. Oh, it's just that because this is published by European Press, they. They send a certain amount over and, uh, you know, one of the things about Between Girls is it's definitely a photo book and those of us in the photo world, you know, buy photo books, but it's also, it's a little bit of a crossover book as well. I think Mm -hmm. that people who are just interested in friendship and uh, adolescence and coming of age and aging and all that kind of thing also seem to be very interested in this book. Yes, uh, and, and people uh, who can identify with that period of time in New York as well. Yes, right. that too. Yes. <laughs> well, congratulations, and uh, thank you for, uh, for doing this. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this has been fantastic. All right, so um, thanks again, and uh, bye, everyone. Bye. Real Photo Show with Michael Chauvin Dalton is a production of Real Photo Show, which you can listen to on all your favorite podcast platforms. Please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher, and be sure to subscribe on any one of those services or wherever you listen to podcasts.